No, actually, when uh, Rob and Greg and whoever else suggested that, that you guys wanted to discuss the topic of ministry in the marketplace, it is the kind of topic that lends itself to interaction. So it doesn't have to be a challenge. It can just be an observation, a thought, a question. Um, please, uh, it, it, we will have a better time if we can get some dynamic going. Uh, typically, you may be used to me just dumping a truck and... I'm going to try to change that style up a little bit today. So I'll start in that direction. We'll start with some abstract principles, and then hopefully we'll move to some concrete specifics, some tactics, some strategies, uh, kick around some ideas, how to better serve in the marketplace as representatives of Christ. But there's still room in the abstract uh, portion for, uh, for discussion. Uh, pray with me, if you would. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are your servants. And we apologize because we don't always behave like your servants. We want to write that. And we want to start the day and end the day surrendered, renewed in our surrender, recognizing that you have bought us with a price and we are no longer our own. And, uh, may the implications of that become more real to us today. Forgive us our sins, Father even as we forgive those who sin against us. And please uh, meet us in your word in this time together for your glory, for the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. So I titled the, uh, the time together this morning... When is loving God not enough? Or this would be a great job if it weren't for the customer. So let me put that to you. When is loving God not enough? It's kind of a trick question, but if you're game. When is loving God not enough? Roland. <laughs> when is loving God not enough? When is loving God not enough? Oh, he's, I'm sorry. Uh, Charles Rowland of Colorado Springs responded <laughs> when, um, when it doesn't include obedience. Say it one more time, Jack. When my pain exceeds my love. Could you expand on that? I have a line, and I love God, but if the pain exceeds that line, 
These are good. Anything else? When is loving God not enough? Okay, as I said, it's a trick question. I set you up. Loving God is never enough. Loving God is never enough. Now, why would I say that? Want to guess? Loving God is never enough because it has to include loving others. I cannot isolate my walk with the Lord from my treatment of other people. My vertical relationship with God is, in fact, largely validated by my horizontal relationships. What are the two great commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In this is the summary of the law. And when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, how shall I inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what what does the law say? And in Old Covenant terms, those two commandments summarized faith under the Old Covenant. Love God, love your neighbor. Gentlemen, our Lord, and, and Charles alluded to this, said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. Have you ever thought about the fact that most of the commandments God gives us instruct us as to how to treat one another? They're mostly horizontal commands. So, even in the statement that I love God by obeying Him, obeying Him most often is going to be expressed in my interpersonal relationships. And just to remind you, you can love people without loving God, right? Unbelievers do it all the time. But you cannot love God without loving people. 1 John 4.20, someone want to read? In fact, I'm going to throw these verses out. If you guys will go fast, we won't, we won't have too much of a lag. 1 John 4.20, would somebody read that? These are review for some of you, not for others, but review is good. 1 John 4.20. Yeah. Gentlemen, just by way of application and illustration, you can love your wives really well, but not be loving God. However, you cannot consider yourselves lovers of God if you're being dismissive of your wives. Proverbs 19.17. Somebody take a quick read at that. I'll, that's all right. I'll read it. Um, when you're gracious to a poor man, you lend to the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 19.17. Being gracious to a poor man is like lending to the Lord. That's how closely God identifies with people. In, you know, in, in uh, the Great Tribulation, Matthew 25, 31 to 46 describes, um, uh, actually, it describes the great white throne. I mean, sorry, not the great white right throne. It describes the sheep and goat judgment 
in Matthew 25. And that is post-tribulation when the Lord comes back. And the Lord, as you remember, says, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. You know, we didn't see you thirsty or hungry or in prison. No, but you did. When you visited them, you visited me. Now, what he's saying there is in the Great Tribulation, those followers of, of, of Jesus were representative of him. And it was as good as meeting and caring and loving for Jesus. The point being, there's no, permiss- there's no permission in the Bible to disconnect between the vertical and the horizontal in our lives. I don't know about you, I would love it if we could, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love it if you could just isolate and have your devotional life and your personal life with God and and relate to God and then deal with the garbage relationships out there any way you wanted to. To not be constrained by God in the horizontal relationships. Yes. Yeah, you're, you're not being facetious. You're being, yeah, agreed. But there's always a part of me that says, man, Lord, you're ruining a great opportunity for me or, you know, to, to really be resentful. You know, or take a little revenge. Seriously, Christianity has ruined my sin life. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't sin, but it, I don't enjoy it anymore. Um, and I don't mean to be facetious about that. It's just so a better a better measure of your walk with the Lord, gentlemen, than your devotional life, than your Bible study, than your prayer. A better measure, not the only measure, but a better one is your relational life. So just keep that in mind. Ultimately, we'll get to ministry and how that relates to that. But um, again, most commands involve how I will relate to other people. Now. It seems to me that the distinctiveness of a follower of Jesus is not that they love. Okay? Everybody loves. Lots of faiths love. You can be an atheist and love. People understand the value and virtue of love. So a Christian's distinctiveness, in my opinion, is not that he or she loves, but rather who, when, and why they love. Who, when, and why they love. Listen to Luke 6.32 and following. Luke 6.32 and following. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. But if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So from that passage, in that passage alone, we see that what distinguishes our love from the world is who do we love? Not just our friends, but our foes, our enemies. Okay? When do we love? Well, when there's nothing coming back, when there's no return, when there's no reciprocity. And why do we love? God says so, absolutely for sure. And according to this passage, and because maybe some of you weren't reading it, because there's a reward. Because there's a reward and 
because I prove that I'm a son of the Most High. I don't even begin to resemble God, gentlemen, until I'm loving my enemies, or at least those who aren't my friends. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with loving people that are your friends. It just means there's nothing distinctive about you. You haven't proven yourself to be a son of God. I haven't proven myself because everybody does that. That's normal, right? That's common love. He's, it's, it's natural, God says, to love those that love you. It's supernatural to love your enemy. Remember the Good Samaritan story? We won't necessarily go there. Uh, we might later, but I already referenced it. The lawyer comes to Jesus, says, how shall I inherit eternal life? What does the law say? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Fine, go do it. And then it says something interesting about the lawyer. Lawyer says, wanting to justify himself, what was the question he asked of Jesus? Who is my neighbor? Okay, so I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor. Now, interesting, he didn't ask about loving God. He's, who's my neighbor? Now, that kind of a question is interesting to me. It's almost like he's, he's trying to decide who he doesn't have to love, right? Like, l- let me just, because I, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. I got the right. So he's already established in his mind that there are some people that he can pass on, that he can give exemptions to. And it's fascinating to me as I read the story of the Good Samaritan, the way Jesus tells the story. You remember the guy falls you know, at the hands of robbers. He's, he's lying dead on the side of the road. This isn't a flat tire. This guy is, you know, he's really in bad shape. Priests come by. They ignore him. Finally, a Samaritan, right, sworn enemy of the Jews, comes by, helps him, does amazing things. I'm not giving it uh, its due, but tells the story, and then Jesus asks a very interesting question. Some people miss this. He says, he asks the lawyer, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? Do you remember that? Now, it's interesting because he doesn't, that, that isn't the question you would think he would ask. Who was the neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? You'd think it was the man who fell among the thieves that's the neighbor that I'm supposed to identify. And that the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is anybody I come across. Right? That's what you would think would be the point of the story. So the answer is, your neighbor is anybody that you come across with a need. But he doesn't say that. He says, who was the neighbor to that guy? And I think what he's doing is he's forcing the lawyer into the shoes of the guy fallen by the road, and he says, who would you receive help from? Is there anybody you wouldn't receive help from if you were within an inch of your life? That's who your neighbor is. See how he flips it? And all of a sudden, it's not just who you come by who has a need, it's who would you receive love from? Because whoever that is, that's your neighbor. Because that's, that's what he says. Who was the neighbor to the guy who fell down? Anyway, it, it, the thing that strikes me about that is that we all, I think, consciously or unconsciously, have people that are either specific in our minds or general that we somehow feel like they're exempt from the love rule. Right? 
someone who's unworthy of my love. They're not worth my time. And I believe, gentlemen, that God is telling us that there is nobody that we can exclude from our love purview because they're unworthy or because they're unqualified. Now, watch this, though. I may exclude them for other reasons, other constraints, time, resources, other commitments. I'm not saying that I I can equally love everybody that comes in my path, but what I can't do is exclude anybody because they're not worthy. There are no exemptions, no exclusions. Christian love is without prejudice. Comments or questions, thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. What's your name? Dennis. Dennis. Yes. He sure was. Yeah, it went down hard. Yeah, great point, Dennis. Anybody else? Yeah, we're just unpacking love here. We're, at, we're ministry's on its way. Yes. What, what's your name? Don. Oh, Don. Good. How are you? Everybody looks so old to me. Yeah, it, it, great, and it, thanks a lot for stealing my thunder, because that's the next point. No, I'm kidding. That, that's, that's perfect, though. That's, that's exactly where we're going next. Um, we want to talk just a little bit, review the concept of love. But before we do, any other comments or questions without, you know, taking away from my hard work? Don, I'm kidding. Great point. All right. Love as a concept, as you guys know, has become so sentimentalized and watered down um, I think we really forget how serious it is, and, and, and it's, it's a serious concept. So let's spend a few minutes on it, and I'm going to take a little bit of a back door to it with you. Um, you direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 13. Slow wind-up, but we're, we're going to get to Don's point in, in a minute, or his observation. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Old familiar passage. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So let me review. Without love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, I produce nothing of value, 
I am of no value, and I gain nothing of value. It's possible to engage in incredible acts of self-sacrifice and still have your life amount to a big zero. It's possible to give your life to charitable causes, to boldly represent Jesus Christ to the world, and it still profits you nothing if you don't have love. You can raise phenomenal kids, send them to, through high school, college, they marry wonderful Christian spouses, and it accrues no credit to you in the economy of God. All those sacrifices, all those carpools, all those sleepless nights, you're better off if you didn't have kids at all, if you don't have love. Now notice this. Those things I may do, those sacrifices, those efforts, those great works, they still have value to others, right? But they'll just have no value to me. If I give all my possessions to the poor, the poor benefit but I don't. And that's the thing we've got to be careful that we don't miss because we automatically think, well, look at what good I have done. Look at the number of people who've come to Christ because of me. But it actually profited me nothing because I don't have love. Now, the Lord makes the same kind of warning, if you remember, to the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2 as Paul does here in Corinthians. The, the Lord in, in Revelation 2, we won't go there, but in the letter to Ephesus, he affirms the, the Ephesians, their defense of the faith, their intolerance of false teaching. You know, they're working hard. This is a hard work in church in Revelation 2. And yet he threatens to abandon them because they've abandoned their first love. Now, neither Jesus nor Paul specify whether the love they're referring to is love of God or love of people, and I believe it's because, as we said earlier, they're inextricably linked. You can't separate love of people from love of God or love of God from love of people. All right, now let me move and, and, and circle back to Don's observation. Let's take a stab just for a minute at defining or redefining or describing love. Now, as you know, to the general population, love is a real squishy, sentimental concept, and it's largely defined in terms of emotion, right? It's an emotional concept, the way the world defines it. Biblically, as Don pointed out, love is a firm concept, and it's largely defined in terms of our volition, not our emotion. Christian love, biblical love, is first and foremost a choice. It's a decision. Now, it may or may not have an emotional component. There's nothing wrong with there being an emotional component. Likewise, there's nothing wrong with there not being an emotional component to love. It's ultimately irrelevant. It may be more or less pleasant, but it's irrelevant as far as the quality of love. It's, by the way, this idea of volitional love, it's why your marriage vows... Um, if you're married, ended with I do and I will, not I feel. So what is this choice? What is this decision that love makes? Well, at the simplest level, and I, I, th this is my very simple mind, love is to choose to be devoted to a person or to a thing. 
It's devotion to another person or another thing. To give myself, when love is directed to God, let's say, for example, um, it's to be devoted to God's good pleasure, to be devoted to God's will. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. So loving God, directing my love to God, is to be devoted to his pleasure. When love is directed toward people, it is to be devoted to their good, to their welfare. Loving people is that I'm devoted to their best interest. Do you think that, does that work for you? Is that, I mean, again, nothing profound here, but let's just make sure we've got the basics. Love is another way of saying is, is a declaration of someone's worth. It's and a dedication to your welfare. Love says, I affirm your value and I'm committed to your good. Now, what's interesting about this love, any love, pagan or Christian, that is this kind of love, it requires a level of surrender of me. I have to surrender self in order to pursue and be devoted to your good or to the pleasure of God. It occurs to me that when the Lord told his disciples what a prerequisite was for following him in Luke 9.23... He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Have you ever considered that the reason that we're called to deny self is so that God can make us into lovers? It's not just that, we got, that we're to be these austere, rugged soldiers who deny ourselves for the sake of the cause. No, it's because God wants to make us into lovers of him and lovers of people. And the only way to do that, the beginning point, is to deny David. So godly love and self-denial, it seems to me, go hand in hand. I deny self in order to give self away. I can't be protecting myself, seeking myself, fulfilling myself, and giving myself away at the same time. I've got to make a decision. So we literally surrender to the things we love. I know this is still very kind of 30,000 feet. We're going to get down to the brass tacks in a minute. Now, this, this might be new. I think you'll like this. We know that 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is not merely the act of giving myself away. Why do we know that it's not merely the act of giving myself away? Because it says you could give yourself away and not have love. So it's not, whatever that is, it's not just giving oneself away. It's not just self-sacrifice. And that's why I think love actually has two facets, if you will. Intent and application of intent. We say that the two facets of love are intention and application of intention, with intent being the more important of the two. Yeah, it seems to me that love has two facets. 
intention, my intent, and my application of that intent, with intention being more important than application. I'll tell you why I say it's more important. Because the wrong application doesn't necessarily negate the intention, right? If you're a parent, do you intend to do right by your kids? Do you intend to do well by your wife? Absolutely. Do you always get it right? No. Does that make it less loving when you miss the mark on the application? I don't think so. It just means, you know, among many things, you're not God and you didn't maybe know what was in their best interest. But that's why I think you can have these stunning applications, a la 1 Corinthians 13, but without the intent of love, they're a big zero. I think that's how we, we can understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 13. Somebody have a thought? or was Jack, did you raise your hand? No? Could you try to keep the motion down over there because it's very distracting? You start scratching and throws me all off. We're going to have to start back. What was the title of this talk? Um, let me stop. Okay, any comments or questions at that point? Yes, sir. Motive? Yeah. You said you could talk about it all day, Jones? Feel free. No, I think I think it's motive. So the issue of my heart, what do I want? My intention is for your good. My intention is for your welfare. My intention is to do right by you, to give myself to you. My application may may miss the mark. But that's my intent. Now, I might have hold on one second. I might have um Great intention, lousy application, but I could also have lousy intention and great application. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, that makes me a zero. Yeah, that's between you and Steve. I'm... Well, let me, let me push back just a, a tad. Um, you can't be certain of your motives, but that doesn't mean you can't have a clue. You, 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 you are not God. You, are, you, won't, you don't make the final decision on your motives, but you should strive to have pure motives. You, you should be able to look at a motive and see a good from a bad one. I mean, Paul, Paul talks about it all the time. In, in fact, we're going to look at it later, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, when we came to you, we didn't come with a pretext for greed. So that's intent. See, he says, our intention was not to make money off of you, was not to show off, was not to get power. Our intent was pure. And, and Paul apparently felt like he could say that. Now, I don't think when Paul says that, that he is presuming to pass judgment in God's place. 
So I think he's sort of making a preliminary statement, as even though he doesn't say it in these words, best I know, our intention was good. And I think we should strive to be able to say that. And I don't think we have to you know, say, oh, well, I don't know my motives. Well, you better know your motives. I don't mean that you know them purely, but you better try to know them. Because I think if we're not careful, and I'm sorry, I'm going on a little bit too long, but if we're not careful, what we end up doing is we go, well, I can't know my motives for sure, so I just don't think about them. Right? I don't, I don't worry about them because, hey, you know, they're probably not pure. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't think that's a good place to be. I strive for pure motives. I seek to identify them. But then I realize God has the final say. Is that... You, okay, Steve. Well, I was just going to say, Dave, we talk a lot about prophet motive uh, in this bunch. And it's very clear that uh, that motivation for prophet can't be the only motivation. It has to be combined with love. And so whatever your motivation is, it, it seems like these two almost go hand in glove. So the intent and the desire to love. Well, put it this way, if you don't have love in your intent, you're a big zero. That I can tell you. I don't know if the, the other is true, but I can tell you for sure, without love, no matter what you do, according to 1 Corinthians 13. So even if we seek eternal rewards, we better have love in that. That's what I understand, 1 Corinthians 13, particularly when it says, you know, um, if I give all my possessions and I surrender my body to be burned but don't have love, it profits me nothing. That sounds like the profit motive there, and it's a big zero. Yeah. So motivation is part of our intent. Uh, I, I just can't separate love and the intent and the motivation. It's got to be part and parcel of the motivation as well. Yeah. So I, I, I just, I, again, guys, this is just me trying for my, to, to figure this out for myself. So I don't want to stand up here and tell you this is the truth about love. This is David trying to figure out how this, not just the meaning of Scripture, but then how to make sense of the meaning of Scripture. So I could be wrong, okay? So let me just, I, I could be way off. But this is my way of understanding love, and I think it's a package deal. Motive and application. And all I'm saying is, with the wrong motive, the application doesn't mean anything. With the right motive, it seems to me the application has some room for failure because the only people that are perfect in application when it comes to doing what's in someone else's best interest is what is who? Is God, because he's the only one who actually knows what's in someone's best interest. I'm always guessing. Now, I'm accountable for guessing good, right? Living with my wife in an understanding way is really another way of saying, I'm going to hold you accountable for how hard you worked at understanding your wife so that you could love her well. Anyway, yeah, Jack. Yeah, that, that's a good, that's a helpful uh, distinction. It might be, do you, do you find that the case? Yeah.
Yeah, and, and I, I, love the, I love the observation. So, and forgive me, guys, because this is, I, I love thinking out loud with you, and it's painful for you, but helpful for me. I think with my mouth, so sorry. But it's, I think, along the lines of what you're suggesting, I think sometimes as I look at my own life, my motive starts where you're talking about, right? That's where it starts. I don't think I should ditch the whole idea just because it started the root was a bad motive. Do you? I mean, I, I, sending my, my boss a birthday card is a good idea. And I want to bring my motive to the place where I'm willing to do it or I want to do it for the right reasons. But I don't think not doing it is as good as doing it for the wrong. I'd rather do the right thing for the wrong reasons than do nothing because I can't find the pure motive to, to do it. Um, so I think we ought to give ourselves the slack to say, you know, maybe I got the idea for the wrong reasons, but now God, by your mercy, you know, first I confess it, you know, but also God has a way of testing you by what happens when you do it, right? I mean, you don't get the promotion. And, and that's God's way of saying, okay, and I just wanted to see where you are on that. Uh, but somebody had a, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, or another more simplistic and not as good as that is um, self-interest is thinking of yourself. Selfishness is thinking only of yourself. Okay. This is another way of saying it, that, that, that you're right. What I, the, the, the person I want to be thinking of reciprocity from biblically, I, and this is a high mark, is I want to be, it's okay to look to God for reciprocity because he says you can. He just says don't look to others for it. You know what I mean? So if, you're, if your desire for reciprocity is directed heavenward, good deal. Now, better be careful because, you know, it may not be a reward here or may not be a reward at all. Anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't see. Uh, okay, we got a, a, a ton of hands. I don't know who's first, but I'm going to go here just because he's a little better looking. Okay? Just say, I'm just saying, I don't know. I think he spent a little more time this morning, you know, Razor. Boy, I'm pretty abusive for a for, you know for a guy who's just rolling into town. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, so my question is, if we talk about manipulation, like uh, buy your wife jewelry because you know you want to buy a truck and you want to use that as leverage. Okay, so so we understand uh, that that's manipulation. Uh, nothing wrong with doing something nice to your wife, but when we understand that's manipulation, so we pull back at that. Confess that to God and say, well, Lord, I want to do something for my wife, but whoa, I missed the mark here, so take this out of my mind so I can do it for the right reason. I, 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 that could be a, a that, that's a very reasonable approach. I'm saying do it anyway. You, you know, buy her the jewelry and then work on the motive as you go. 
In other words, you don't necessarily have to wait till you get find that pure motive because I'm not sure you'll know when you've got it. And now that it's in your head, you know, there'll always be that question. Just, you know, it's a good thing. Do it and... Yeah. I should have gone with you first. I, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> this guy's got me stumped, and I don't know what to do. No, I hear you. I hear you. And I think, and, and to, to your point, I think it's it, it's a personal it's a personal call. You know, it's a faith call. Um, I, I respect you if you say I, I think I need to back off because I'm I'm deceiving my wife. You could tell your wife. Say, honey, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but I I just I want I want you to know. I don't know me and 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 your wife might not go, you know and that might not might not work. Uh, what? Or just don't get the truck? But by the way, the, this, is, this is where we all live, right? I mean, and, and this is not unimportant. And also, I just want to say, as we get to ministry and the marketplace and meeting with men, the same issue is going to come up because ministry is just an expression of love. It's a more specific expression of love when we minister, but it's an expression of love. So this is, even though it seems, again, kind of high up here, it, this is very meaningful and practical. So you guys wrestling with these sort of specifics is good. Go ahead. So, you know, I, I get that. I'm sorry, and you're not. I apologize for the comment. No, I Nobody can help their genes. But so with the intentions and, and an application and, and all of that kind of stuff is not any good without the love. So in application, um, you know, helping the neighbor, shoveling the snow, mowing his yard. But the guy really aggravates me a lot, you know, and I can't get I'm I'm stumbling. This road down to love is pretty bumpy and I'm not a real mushy kind of guy. So first Corinthians thirteen. Yeah, it, it's a very good. I would say it's a description of love more than a definition. Yeah, yeah, it describes how love interacts um, with someone else. Yeah, very, very well. Can you imagine if you just drove according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7? I mean, I, I, mean I, 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 it's, I can't even begin to tell you how my flesh starts to crawl and emerge just behind the wheel. And I'm so ashamed because I think, you know, I'm supposed to love my enemy and this is just a guy driving down the highway who's not driving very well, but... How will I ever do if I really meet somebody who's out to destroy me? I mean, it really is very sobering to me. Let me just throw this out to you for what it's worth. You know, I, I think we all have an image of who we are. 
you know, in terms of where we are in sanctification. And, and one day I realized that I'm heavily under-tested. And every once in a while the Lord puts a test in front of me and I think, I am not the man I thought I was. Now, it wasn't that I was living in hypocrisy or insincerity. It was just I thought I was a better guy. And so the reason I make that point is to suggest to you guys, remember that you don't know who you are until you're tested. So, I mean, we can't help that. I'm not saying go look for tests, but it's just, that keeps you humble. Because you realize I am a, maybe you're not, and I'm not saying you have to be, but I'm severely under-tested. And so I, I, I live frightened of who I might find out that I am. And that keeps me humble. I mean, I mean it really, I mean, it sounds so, that keeps me humble. It, it, it breaks me. Forget humble. It breaks me. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, great point. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is a great start. On, did you have any other, anything else you wanted to, on that? No. no. Okay, good. Anything else? I mean, yeah. Yeah, and and I don't. You're not saying what I'm gonna, but but often I'll pick. You know, I'll jump like a little springboard off of me. You said, "Tell me what you guys think of this." I I think that it is absolutely clear the Bible says God does reward our acts. Would you agree with that? So I take it by faith that God may, I don't know what, may reward something I'm doing. However, I, have n- I don't think I deserve anything. And so, I can't look at anything and say, well, that for sure is going to get... And I'm, you weren't saying this. I'm just, it just made me think of this. I don't know if God will reward anything. I know He does, but that doesn't mean that, he, that I can even come close to identifying what's reward-worthy in my life. And so I just caution you about going down that road. Yes, God rewards, but we have no idea uh, what he will or won't reward. Yeah. Yeah, that's self-interest, which is not a sin. So, so there's an area where this is appropriate, then. Uh, which is appropriate? To have self-interest motives. Yes. Yeah, in fact, that passage in Luke, 
when it talks about loving your enemy, he says, and if you do that, your reward will be great. In other words, if you go beyond what's natural, which is to love those that love you, and love somebody that's out to destroy you, you've gone beyond the natural to the supernatural, you will be rewarded. So he says that is worthy of reward and you'll prove yourself to be a son of the Most High God. And that's self-interest, right? Sure. Absolutely. Right. But, but again, it's self-interest relative to God. Remember, it's I'm looking for something from God, not from my enemy. So I live horizontally but I don't set my expectations horizontally, right? I'm giving and loving and sacrificing horizontally, but I'm looking vertically for the reward. I'm not looking for reward here. So I think that's the difference. It's an eternal self-interest as opposed to a temporal self-interest. Is that, are you comfortable with that? Okay. Yeah. 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 This sort of opens up a whole other door of the, the, the one of the, the importances of a, of a devotional life, whatever that means to you. To, to me, it's uh, the devotional life is many things, but one of them is it's it's adjusting your frequency um, so that if the Father, if the Spirit wants to nudge you one way or the other, you're tuned in. I don't expect him to broadcast all the time. I don't expect him to broadcast any of the time if he doesn't want to. It's not up to me, but I want to tune in. I want to line my heart with him and his spirit each day so that he can prompt me if he wants to. He can convict me of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I just, just for what it's worth, I, if I don't live there, then I'm liable to just blow through life and make all kinds of you know, decisions and then not even consider my motives but but you're right we can over you know it's like C.S. Lewis used to say the the guy that plants a flower and then digs up look at the roots every day see how it's doing you'll kill it right so anyway somebody over there had a hand yeah That's 
All right. I'm going to keep. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, the time has. I'm loving the interaction. You guys don't mind if I don't like. We just. This is good, right? We're, we're not. We're not on. We're not trying to cover any particular matter. Kind of, it haunts me that question. It haunts me. Um, I've done every trick in the book, you know. Decided ahead of time, you know, how much I was going to give to people, and you know, I mean, all that. None of them feel like they've made it okay. Um, so, it's a good question, but I think wrestling with it is I'm more concerned with men knowing what God doesn't say you know that God doesn't say we all have to divest not because I'm so happy he doesn't but I just don't want somebody laboring under the wrong impression now God may want you to divest completely in to, to, for charity but that's between you and the father so I'm more clear on what God doesn't say in these areas than what he does say uh, or, or how he will lead. But again, if we really care about following the leading, that's why we want to be tuned in, right? Because there's, there's less likelihood that we're going to be walking in the flesh and missing opportunities that we don't get back. Anyway, so as long as we were talking about marriage, let me just throw a quick marriage application in. Um, in the context of marriage, it's all important, gentlemen, and you know this, but I'll remind you that your spouse believes it's your intent for their good, for their best. Because I think a marriage can survive an awful lot if both people believe the other one still cares, still intends to do right by them. Your application may fall short with one another, but if you're communicating sort of an unwavering desire for their good, I think you're going you're gonna to make it. But if one of you no longer believes that the other one has their best interests at heart, and you start thinking, well, they're not looking out for me, so I've got to look out for me, you go into self-protection mode. You no longer love because you can't protect yourself and love at the same time, right? It's, 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 it's a contradiction. Self-protection and love are a contradiction. They don't coexist but if you're in that place your marriage is in a crisis and boy it doesn't have to be after 30 or 40 years I've watched it happen in the first year um, of, a, of a young marriage where just some little decisions the guy made caused his wife to think gosh I, I don't think you're really looking out for me and so they, they, they shifted anyway so if you believe that you really still have one another's best interests at heart, I think you can make a lot of mistakes if you believe you still care. Um, okay, I'm going I'm to go quickly through some bullet points, but stop me if something hits you. Um, liking someone is not a virtue. Not liking someone is not a sin. Okay? Again, this all is going to lead us to ministry. Um, 
love and liking are not synonymous. Love for people is not measured by how much I like those people, but how I treat those people. Okay, I'll say that again. Love for people is not measured by how much I like them, but rather how I treat them. Now, liking someone can make loving them easier, right? It's easier to love someone I like, but liking someone can also make it harder to love them. How does it make it harder when you like someone? Because you don't want to do the hard thing, right? You're a little bit blinded to what might be in their best interest because you really like them. Faithful of the wounds of a friend, deceitful of the kisses of an enemy. Better is love... What is it? Concealed? I lost it. Anyway, the first one will get you through. Um, So affection can actually cloud my judgment when it comes to love. Just like dislike can cloud my judgment when it comes to love. So my feelings about you, positive or negative, can be a hurdle for me to get over in order to actually love you. So in that sense, I would say love requires a certain degree of emotional self-discipline. If you're going to love people, at some point you're going to have to be able to manage your emotions, especially your anger, especially your hurt or your resentment or your disappointment. Those feelings you're going to have to manage if you're going to love. So if you're somebody who just gives themselves over to those emotions, you've just made loving incredibly difficult, if not impossible. All right, let me wrap up. So love then is volitional, intentional, and predictable. Affection is unpredictable, circumstantial, and fickle. Nothing wrong with it. It's just, it is what it is. Now, it is not only appropriate, it is righteous to prioritize my love. Okay? So there is a biblical prioritization that needs to take place in your love life. First, obviously, God, but he's at every point. So your wife and kids, your family. What's next? Body of Christ. Galatians 6 says, do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. So there's a priority. And then the world including my enemies. So family, you're worse than an infidel if you don't take care of your own. The body of Christ. Oh, and by the way, the teach not not me, but I'm just thinking biblically, teachers, according to Galatians 6, and then the world. Any other comments or questions? Just on this general kind of re-laying the groundwork on love. Yeah, it's just Galatians, I think it's Galatians 6. Isn't it Galatians 6? Well, that's, that's the body over the world. Um, I thought it was in 6, that's why it came to my head. Uh, what is it? Would you read it, please? Am I right, Charles? Is there? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, that's not a that's not a pitch, okay? Just anybody. It is not not the not a pro necessarily. Just 
your teachers, those who are shepherding and teaching you? Depends. Let me know who they are, and I'll let you know whether I think. <laughs> I'm doing a little editing up here because I want to move into as uh, quickly as I can into ministry. Um, what time do we want to break? Is it break time? Five minutes. Okay. Anybody? No. By the way, you know where the Lord said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, if you're having trouble loving someone, a great way to kick jumpstart that is just start investing in them. Invest your time, invest your money, invest your prayers. It's amazing what that does, at least for me. So much so I don't want to do it. Yeah. 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 Yes. Or even just, do you find just to go to, to prayer with them? I mean, just to talk to God, to go into the presence of the Holy of Holies and start discussing somebody that I'm harboring anger and resentment toward, it's, it's kind of hard to stay there. Is that, is that, would you agree with that? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And it doesn't if I understand the Bible, it, it, it says nothing about your love. Yeah, affection all I in my opinion, liking and affection just makes it easier. I mean, but it says nothing necessarily about the quality of your love. Now, harboring 
and massaging dislike can affect me adversely and I get into other, you know, sins um, and problems, uh, a lack of forgiveness. What, what do you mean by uh, dust off our sandals? What, um, what, what I, I, I think I know, but I want to make sure I'm not yeah. guessing. Okay, I got I'm going to have to interject because I'm going to lose it. Um, so there's no, 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 no. You guys are all right. I'm just. So would you agree there's a difference between the message and the messenger? Okay, uh, and this is not going to be very neat and orderly because I'm trying to put it all together with what you said. But Greg, I agree with you. But the pearls, I think, before swine is content. It's the message, right? It's it's not me. Like you're not worthy of me. It's it's the, there may be a time when the message gets withdrawn. Is, would you agree with that? And likewise, the dust. R- right. I, I don't know whether it is or not. Different issue. But in the context, the the pearl is is the message. In the context of shake your dust off the feet, that was. Take away the privilege of revelation. Take away the privilege of the gospel to that town because of their response. It wasn't take it personally how they're treating you, but rather it wasn't that they were offending the messenger that was the issue, is that they were rejecting the message, right? And so your question of when do I shake the dust off my feet is a good question. I don't know because, again, that can be subjective. I, I, but I do know that I I. I don't, necess- I don't feel the f- same freedom to, to shake the dust off if I'm offended. You know, just if it's a personal offense as opposed to a rejection of the, of, of the message I bring. Um, and, and not only that, I'm not sure when, when to stop ministering to a guy because he's just not interested. That's a faith call. Um, and I know some guys that have been meeting with the same guy for 20 years. I mean, I'm not kidding. I can, I can see him in my, and he's just plowing ahead. And I would have not given up, but I probably would have moved on, you know, a long time ago. And it doesn't mean I'm wrong, he's right, or he's right, I'm wrong. It, it, it's just we all will have a sense of, it's a little bit like John, Mark, and Barnabas. 
and Paul. Remember how Paul split up, uh, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas split up on the second missionary journey over John Mark, right? They, they did. They, they were traveling together on the first missionary journey, right? John Mark went home early to see his mom or something like that. And so come the second missionary journey, Paul said, I don't want him with us. Well, Barnabas said, you know what, I, I, I still got a vision for the guy. So he and John Mark went off and Paul split up. So they just had a different vision, a different sense of stewardship over John Mark. Turned out to be a pretty good guy. But So anyway, we're all going to do it differently. But, but I do think as we go into the next section, remember the difference between message and man, message and messenger. And, and distinguish in your mind what's being rejected, um, where the offense lies, um, because that's important. Because the temptation is, if you hurt my feelings, you know, I'm going to react, as opposed to, hey, you know, I, I don't mind if you reject the message. I'll, I'll stay in there and love you. Yeah, it is tough. Okay, um, I, I, we, we can go on or we can break, Greg. What do we do? Break. Okay, we'll come back at 10.15. Thank you guys. Uh, I'm loving the interaction, so appreciate it.